the Up Full Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 31, coming to you live and direct from Isolation Station in the Sierra Nevada foothills of Northern California. And yep, we're still on punishment, but so grateful you are tuning in. And we're back here on the Up for Life podcast, episode 31, Isolation Station, volume 3. And I wanted to let you all know that this particular episode is brought to you by Luminosity by Path to Panacea. These are custom herbal tea blends for do-it-yourself infusions, tinctures, and syrups. Uh, They're rolling out some new immune-boosting tea blends this week. The herbs are delightful, infused as tea, but they also include instructions for making your own botanical medicines for those do-it-yourselfers out there. Great gifts for loved ones near and far. That's Path to Panacea, P-A-T-H-T-O-P-A-N-A-C-E-A.com. Now, uh, they have an immunity, a respiratory revival, inhale love, exhale gratitude, wellness wonderment, sea bumba, and the clearly lettuce-inspired vibe up. Those are each of the different blends that are rolling out. You can check out Path to Panacea on Etsy. And uh, full disclosure, this is my lovely fiance Alicia's company that she started up about a year and change ago. She's a holistic nutritionist. And uh, sadly, she lost her uh, main job of five years at this amazing restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, and she'd been there a long time and uh, fostered this uh, passion project on the side. But now, uh, given the circumstances, it's timely in light of everybody's need to take the best care of themselves and their immune system. And it's also essential for her as she's lost her employment source. So if you're inclined to support this podcast, please support 
uh, this endeavor from Path to Panacea, Luminosity, uh, pathtopanacea.com. Their mission is to enhance the vitality of future generations by empowering families to explore positive practices, producing more mindful, adventurous eating habits to cultivate a lifetime of health. Path to Panacea, y'all. Luminosity. Now peep this Badu Apocalypse 2 window seat cannabinoids rework for a hot minute here. As I've mentioned uh, on the previous two episodes in this Isolation Station series of the Up For Life podcast, that I want to do my best to adapt and transition to the circumstances at hand in the music culture, industry, and in the communities, because obviously this unforeseen uh, epic pause and slowdown has had uh, some major ramifications and um, that's what this show is about just sort of seeing our way through that and just fostering a sense of, of togetherness and community and free exchange of ideas support networks and just good conversations to listen in on so with that said volume three of isolation station is live stream 101 Clearly, uh, the live stream medium has become an essential part of uh, musicians and artists uh, performing for and reaching, connecting with their audiences and fans, and making new ones as well. And it's a wild, wild west, uh, this, this live stream frontier, if you will, in the new reality. And you're seeing uh, everything from bold font artists like a Metallica, Radiohead, Pearl Jam, the Grateful Dead, the Fish from Vermont. Uh, they're doing really uh, interesting things with their vault, with connecting with their fans. Obviously, Fish uh, released the Sigma Oasis album and a listening party, which was super cool in real time. Uh, of course, tons of independent artists underground artists, DJs, uh, are broadcasting from their home studios, from their den, their kitchen, their bedroom, uh, intimate performances, conversations, ask me anything, you name it, 
and it's it's really evolving by the moment and in real time so I wanted to create a show that was a resource for fans and artists and promoters and really whomever is interested in uh, navigating this the live streaming and uh, everything that comes with it so we're talking about platforms do's and don'ts and why why not business models incorporating merch uh, we're just talking about the do's and don'ts pros and cons and just really knocking around a bunch of ideas the first conversation you're going to hear on this podcast is a roundtable if you will uh, between a longtime YouTube and Google exec in the digital music space, Ted Kartzman, Teddy K or TK to his pals, and a baller music rights and entertainment law attorney, Liz Moody. Um, she's been a lawyer for many music services, RDO, YouTube, Pandora, Spotify. Uh, she's currently working as chair of new media practice at Granderson De Rochers. Um, just doing big things out there. Teddy K uh, started Jam Bass with Andy Gadiel. He's still uh, a member of the board of directors. He's been in the digital media world for 20 plus years with Rhapsody, IOTA, Google Play Music, and now, of course, YouTube. And, of course, Teddy and I go way back... Um, Jambase really gave me my my first opportunity and biggest and longest tenured, if you will, opportunity to write about music, publish it for people to see, and connected me with artists and festivals, and gave me a ticket to ride, if you will. And I'll never forget or take for granted how just absolutely incredible the Jambase experience was for me from like late '99 up through 2014. You know, none of that really would have happened without uh, people like Teddy Kay, who's about to come on the show, and uh, Deanne Berkowitz, then she was Deanne Herman, Andy Gadiel, uh, later the Case Man, Dennis Cook, all the people that shepherded me through uh, writing for Jambase. And you're hearing in the background, I switched it up on a quick pause for the cause there, you're hearing the slip. We started with uh, Get Me with Fuji uh, from Angels Come On Time. Now, TK was uh, the Slips manager for a long time. My boy Robbie K, who I grew up with, uh, was involved in that uh, with, as a tour manager. And the Slip was a huge and is a huge part of the Jam Bass legacy. Um, and TK is the sort of connector hub of those worlds. And there was a great family of bands that sort of coalesced around Jam Bass back in the day. Uh, and many of them were celebrated and revisited, and we rejoiced at the 20-year anniversary that TK was instrumental in putting together uh, at Sweetwater in Mill Valley out here in the Bay Area, September of 2019. I uh, was honored to be invited to that, and we were treated to a jam with The Slip and Eric Krasno. Kras and Brad Barr go, like, back to when they were young teenagers, jamming, shedding, and... Uh, they busted out one of the earliest slip tunes to jam with Kraz from the get-go. 
at Jambase 20. So uh, just before Teddy K and Liz Moody come on to chop it up about all things live stream, we'll hear the last few moments of shred from the slip and Kraz. Jambase 20 on the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Welcome to the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. I am honored and privileged to have two very special guests on the show today in light of the fallout from the COVID-19 virus and music industry transitioning. Um, so I'd like to welcome Liz Moody to the show. She's a lawyer for a number of music services and Teddy Kartsman, who's uh, with YouTube now, but i known him for many years going back to the jam base days. So welcome to the show, Liz and Teddy, and please introduce yourselves. Thanks. Um, nice to talk to you all. I'm Liz Moody. I'm currently the chair of new media at a law firm, Granderson de Rocher, um, where we work with a lot of artists and digital media companies, as well as labels and publishers. I've been, gosh, I've been working in the digital media space for close to 20 years, started right after Napster and have work with a number of music services, many of which aren't around anymore, but uh, some of them are Spotify and YouTube, RDO, um, most recently was at Pandora running music partnerships there. And now I'm working with a number of uh, startups, including several in the live music space, um, as well as some uh, some other new media services like Triller and lots of artists, too. So. Over to you, Teddy. Thanks, Liz. I'm so glad that we could do this. I've known both Liz and B for many, many moons, and uh, we talk all the time about music, so if there's some way to bring education to the masses, I'm glad we're doing it. A little background on me. I am, uh, as Brian mentioned, a Jambase founder, so I've been in the digital media sphere for 20, 22 years or so. After Jambase um, and doing a little artist management, I went to work at Rhapsody doing early streaming service deals. So I've always been working on subscription services, and that's still my day job at YouTube. After Rhapsody, I went to IOTA, and then I kind of understood the client side, and then went back to the service side working at Google Play Music for and almost 10 years. For the last five years, I've been focused on YouTube, and I work on large record labels, so I know a little bit about the master side of music licensing, and my passion is live music. I'm still on the Jambase Board of Directors and still kind of helping make any any support I can for for that world, and I just, you know, love to support artists, so I thought we could drop a little bit about what we've been working on and some strategies that might help artists, some services that might help artists, and if not, just learn a little bit about the cross-section of uh, music licensing, live music, and COVID-19, I guess. Um, what do you think, B? 
Well, I want to say thanks to both of you for the really thorough uh, self-introductions. And, you know, I got a lot of admiration and respect for what both of you do uh, in the music world and in the community. And, of course, uh, with respect to the advances in technology. So that's what brings us here. And, of course, yeah, bringing us together is always the music. And uh, right now we're in the, in essence, the second phase of the pandemic. Uh, most of us have been home roughly a month, give or take. Bands have gotten the opportunity to sort of uh, transition should they uh, want to stream themselves performing or performances from the vault. A number of different presentations uh, have been revealed in the recent weeks. But there's just a whole lot of uncertainty out there. Uh, everything from you know, the, the streams getting bumped off the different uh, networks or platforms to, you know, who has rights to what. And of course, fans just want to know what's their best bet. You know, is there an opportunity to subscribe? Uh, is there a platform that's more uh, catering to their specific needs? So I want it to be just, you know, a wealth of, of information and knowledge and perspective uh, in terms of this podcast. And that's why I invited you both on. So let's start with you, Teddy. Um, just if you wouldn't mind just discussing the, the platforms, uh, the different options that live streaming is currently functioning on, uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will. Well, if you look at what's going on out there, um, you know, YouTube live has been around for a while. I think you're seeing a ton of artists on Instagram live. I think you've got your Facebook live and then Twitch is, is sort of this other, uh, this other order, like a, a pretty large player, and then you've got Zoom coming out of nowhere, and so those seem like the five that are that artists are getting up and going live on, mainly because they're free, and YouTube has a little bit of an eligibility, you know, hurdle with a thousand subscribers before you can go, but they all pretty much have the basic formulas of of chat and. Um, uh, I think as you as you start to look a little bit deeper, the artists need to do and kind of want to do different things, right? If you want to share their screen or bring a second artist in, um, you know, some of the platforms do do it better than others. Like Instant Facebook, I think, are easier to bring a second person in. It doesn't really exist on on YouTube, you know. As uh, you you alluded to, and I think we'll talk more about the. Uh, fact that streams come down midstream and I think you you know maybe we get into this a little bit later but the reality is that these are these are platforms that are expected to have licenses and if people are streaming stuff that they don't own or more likely just you know DJing some uh, you know albums that they don't necessarily control all the rights to there's potential to take it down and, and you have seen that on most notably YouTube has a very advanced content ID platform you've seen it on Instagram and Facebook less so on on Twitch and you know Zoom's just just sort of happening so there is there is you know and we're not even getting into the the TikTok show or maybe Liz can help us get into that but you know just kind of that's kind of a, a quick overview on what I think the the top services are I think everybody who's you know, been home, all of us, and been online, all of us have been watching, you know, have kind of been seeing this stuff come up. Um, so that, I think, is your basic use case for the for the first five. Um, maybe uh, maybe throw to Liz for any uh, additional. I think that's 
that's right for the the big ones. It's an interesting time right now if you look at it from the perspective of artists because you've got, you know, in the first couple of weeks, a lot of um, sort of free live streaming. You're going to buy some of the bigger artists who, you know, are, are trying to experiment with what is it going to take and are people going to, are my fans going to be listening and how do I actually, you know, operationally get this done? Um, and of course, there's been a lot of benefit concerts. I think that what we're starting to find now is that as we're settling in to phase two, as you said, m- mid-tier and smaller artists are getting concerned that, you know, with all the free, the free concerts being available, it could potentially impact their ability to, to earn revenue. And that's, I think we're going to see that um, impacting artists of, of all tiers where the, the monetization element is going to become more important as it looks like we may all be at home a little bit longer. Um, so one of the things that I know artists are doing now is looking at a, what's the best platform for me to reach my fans? What's the best platform for where I might be able to, you know, may potentially if not now earn some, some money and what's the best way to do that? And then, what's the easiest for me to use and how can I, you know, maybe work with some band members or some and, and share. And I I guess the last part is like Ted was just saying, there's a lot of confusion right now about which platforms are better in terms of licensing and, and who's got the rights and and who doesn't. Everyone, of course, all the artists want to make sure they're, they're um, not going to get taken down. Um, We know the, Record labels in particular are starting to focus more and more on some of the live streaming platforms that don't have licenses in place and making sure that they're protecting the rights of their artists, but also making sure that there's, you know, some plans in place for for tracking and taking down content much like YouTube does. So YouTube, and Ted can talk about this, but YouTube does have licenses in place and make sure that it it filters and and pays appropriately um, the artists and it come, becomes an issue, like Ted was saying, sometimes with um, with DJs performing. It's a lot easier, and it, it, we're finding when things get streamed online, it doesn't always translate to the physical uh, club where you've got a DJ uh, performing. When it's online, all of a sudden we realize that we maybe their rights weren't cleared or they're not cleared for online streaming. So we're facing this in the past couple of weeks a, a lot more questions and confusion around rights licensing in particular. Right. It's like the spotlight has now been shined on online streaming and, and live music. And if you have, if you're losing money somewhere else, you want to make sure that, you know, you're maintaining revenue wherever you can. And I think that live has always just been like, oh, yeah, yeah, do the live stream, whatever. You know, we'll give you the rights to you can stream it. And sometimes they left it up for afterwards for video on demand and sometimes not. And there was, you know, it just wasn't given a lot of focus. Now it's under a microscope. So I think Liz is spot on that you're going to see an eyeball on, hey, why is all this free content out there and how do I turn it on? You know, and YouTube hasn't gone the route of having like uh, allowing pay-per-views for artists, but you know, artists at a certain level could do it. Like we saw an amazing Radiohead show uh, come out yesterday on YouTube and, you know, just uh, made amazing, so much magic. I was kind of thinking like they, you could probably have, have charged for that. And I think you'll see some bands start, but for now bands want to give back to their fans, right? You've got Metallica doing Metallica Mondays. You've got, I saw the national did, 
they're doing something every Monday. Radiohead is going to be first in a series on YouTube. You've got The Dead, are, uh, they're launching tonight, on Friday, April 10th, the Shakedown stream, which should have like six, uh, all the six concert films weekly. Yeah, um, and you're going to see more artists kind of put stuff out. But then I think, you know, what Brian was saying, like phase two, now you're going to see people with a plan. Now you're going to see a lot more like, okay, this is the plan. We're going to do X, Y, and Z for free, but we're going to figure out a way to make money. And, you know, some of the routes that YouTube is going, I think are interesting mixing in. If you have an official artist channel on YouTube, you know, mixing in merchandise options, you know, there were ticketing options, but that's, you know, those are more for Real shows had integrations with Ticketmaster, et cetera. But um, now you're looking at the potential to sell merchandise online or just kind of figuring out how are the other ways uh, for the artist to make money. You know, now it's like the, the phase one, I would think we're like, hey, let's raise money and let's make sure everybody, we're getting the care that we can and raise money for the frontline, uh, you know, push responders and stuff. But now it's like, well, how are we going to take donations for ourselves? Because this is going to go on for a little bit longer. And so, you know, you're seeing people work it out in phase one, and now here, as we move into phase two, you're going to see some more plans come into action. So I don't know if there's something that, if you can, um, is is there any recommendations for monetization? You know, I, I could say what it is for you to get on the YouTube Partner Program, get to 1,000 subscribers, get to 4,000 watch hours, and start monetizing. But are there other thoughts around uh, monetization for artists that might be listening or for people who work with artists that might be listening to the podcast. It's interesting because I think there's a number of even smaller platforms that have been around for years that, that probably got started around the ticketed live streaming space before some of the bigger free ones. Like I was talking to a company called stage it this morning. They've been around for quite a long time, but they're, they're still, probably in the startup phase, you know, that or define that way. But they what they do is they take a fee from each ticket sold, but most of the money is going to the artists. And the fans can buy tickets, but it almost feels like virtual currency. They're they've set it up so that it's very easy to to tip or to quote buy a ticket. Um what they do what you do is you actually just buy a note that's been put into your account. So you and you can add tips to the artists. And I think I've Twitch and other platforms have experienced something similar where fans really do now want to be compensating their artists. They're realizing the artists can't for they're losing revenue. And so tipping is a nice way to perhaps as we're entering, you know, the beginning of stage or phase three, maybe we'll see more tipping, more sort of voluntary fan fan payments um, and that could I, I could foresee that being a transition to something that's a little bit more formalized, more like the the physical uh, concerts. It's interesting because we've seen a lot of virtual festivals in the past couple of weeks too. I think especially around the you know the fundraisers for COVID. I was working with um, Trailer that who's doing a live stream today with a bunch of hip hop and urban artists. And they're going across multiple platforms. So they're live streaming on YouTube, on Twitch, on another one called Caffeine that's really popular among younger audiences. Um, it's a gaming, it started out as a gaming platform. But what we're finding there is sometimes the artists just want to get to as many platforms as they can. 
and then find a way perhaps in the future for their fans to tip them or, or find a way to compensate them. Thank you both. Uh, really, really interesting. And uh, there's a lot of perspective there since you guys are sort of seeing things from the inside out and hopefully folks can glean a bit more from uh, the live stream, uh, you know, climate, if you will. I wanted to kind of piggyback on something that you both sort of raised a little while ago, which was in reference to uh, DJs and, and the sort of that performance sector, if you want to say like the, the live club DJ, DJ set, which is predicated on, on remixing and sampling and creating music out of other music to varying degrees. Some of it instantly recognizable and oftentimes totally unrecognizable. And, and, there's a rabbit hole we can go down with sample laws that I'm not really looking to say, but Teddy pointed out to me off air that many of the ASCAP and rights laws that have been drawn up for popular music are very antiquated, and and that is definitive, definitively juxtaposed to what we're discussing, which is, you know, uh, uh, a situation that we're figuring out on the fly. So there's clearly a disconnect there. Do you, uh, Liz, do you see any, uh, like, uh, updating of the laws or the, the rights to reflect this new, new frontier of, of live streaming and, and sort of the DJ culture? Or do you think that they're going to kind of be left in the margins here? I've actually been working on trying to find ways to clear DJ mixes and remixes for, for quite some time and working with some companies that were attempting to do it. I think the answer, the short answer to your question is that before the laws change, the practices will change and um, companies will have to work together to find a way to, to make things work through agreement because in this space, the laws are usually so slow to catch up um, the, and frustratingly so. In the DJ space, they've been, they've been really slow. And part of the problem there is just how the complication of clearing all of the different samples that are, that you find in, in DJ mixes and remixes and then trying to do it quickly and on the fly. So you're, you're seeing a lot of samples in hip hop music too, but there's a, perhaps a little bit more time to clear it, um, before those, you know, tracks get released. They're kind of done behind the scenes by lawyers like the people I work with. But when you get to the DJ space, it's done live. It's done, and, it, and it's done without a lot of premeditation. So you kind of have to look at it after the fact and find a way to, to not only clear the music, but first identify what's even being used. And a lot of times music publishers and record labels don't want their, or the original artist, you know, to, the, that, created the original recordings, don't want those recordings to be kind of messed with, mixed or remixed. So there are, now that we've got technology to uh, be able to identify what's being played, there are, there are ways for these companies to work together to try to clear the music. I think it's a slow process, but now that there's so much attention on it, particularly in the past three to four weeks, I do think there's going to be more movement to working together to fix that slow moving problem. Right on. Yeah. Thank yeah I you. just, I just wouldn't rely on the government to solve it for you. I think no. exactly what you said. <laughs> Agreements will always precede the law. This stuff is, it's a little bit technical for the, the demographic in Congress, if you know what I mean. Sure. 
Teddy, you've been working in the in the live stream and digital music space longer than really anyone that I know of or know personally. So this last month or so has to have been a, just a seismic shift in just your day to day and the landscape of what you do. And I imagine Liz as well. What, how has COVID changed the landscape for digital music and live streaming? And, and what do you see, uh, as in essence, like stage three or four uh, revealing? Uh, you know, I, let, let me jump right to the, what we're missing right now. And I, I've been, it's, I, I need a, I need like a guide, I need a TV guide for all the stuff that's going on. It's constantly like so many different platforms. Like I need somebody to put them all together, like on my TV and be able to like have them come up rapid fire, you know, especially if, especially if there's a community feeling inside. Like last night I watched Fred Torfey of Big Light on a live you know, live stream from what looked like the inside of a spaceship. And it was cool because it was nice and small. And I knew everybody in the chat and it felt like our community for just a second, even though we weren't seeing anybody, you know, and, and um, I don't know, I'd like to be able to catch these things live. If this is our reality staying at home, I'd like to catch these things live in virtual with uh, other people, you know, in the same way, the same reason we go to shows, you know, and uh, so that's one thing that I think we're we're missing at the end. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Liz? I totally agree. You see a lot of people watching Netflix together, and that it, watching a live music concert together, it goes, the experience goes far beyond watching a movie together, right? So I think there's, we're going to see a lot of development in that space. I'm also finding, just in general, those of us that work in the digital music part of the music industry are incredibly busy right now. It's exciting times. I think, you know, I think maybe the music industry has been quite traditional in focusing so much on face-to-face connections, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think now we're being forced to to look more to digital as a way to to bring ourselves to connect online and to connect to different, you know, in different ways. I'm finding that there's a lot of recent technology advances that I think are going to skyrocket things like um, virtual reality and, and um, audio, you know, 3d experiences. There's a number of those types of companies popping up where, you know, people may have not been as focused on making the investment in a better audio experience at home until all of a sudden that's where they're consuming all of their audio. Um, virtual reality experiences are popping up, making it easier for artists to collaborate with each other from different places. So we've got, you know, you could have a band working together using VR to make it feel like they're actually performing in the same room. I think there's a, there's a lot of artists right now struggling with how am I going to, how am I going to do this? So how do I get my setup right? You know, I want to make sure that the experience is really going to be professional I think that over the past month, it was kind of fun to see people, you know, a little bit more real. Only it's a little more raw and and realistic, and and it allows those artists to feel more human and connecting with their fans. But in the long run, we're going to see a lot more focus, I think, on the tech for them to make a better, more professional live experience from home. That's a great point. Um, that it's been very intimate. You know, you're seeing people literally in their houses. You're seeing like 
talk show hosts do their entire shows from inside their houses. Like you're, you're, it's way more casual and interactive than a concert where there's like a stage and it's clear where, you know, you're just another person on a, on a video conference where we're doing that all day. And that is, um, you know, that's one difference. I do think you're you're also to, to kind of riff on what you're talking about. Like it's going to need to get more professional. People are going to need to earn money. I think there's something missing where I see something and it's cool and I heart it on Instagram or I like it on Facebook. Like I need to be able to pay the artist if I appreciate it. Like knowing that I love to go out and support artists. I buy merch every time I can at shows because that's just how you know you're putting money in the artist's pocket. Like, yeah, I can stream their album a bunch, but if I could give some sort of virtual token transfer where I could pay the artist or, you know, like what Liz was saying that made sense, but stage it, or there's something called Super Chat that I'm hoping to see launched really shortly where you can just give pay the artist some money to ask them a question or make them sure they see your comment or to interact with them in some way, you know, but but really do it when it, when the production is more professional as Liz was alluding to, you know, and I'm getting something, you know, and I can hook it up to the stereo at home. And if that's what it is and that's what concerts are going to be, I'm happy to pay for it if I know that that money is going to the artist. So that needs to get a little bit easier so that we can actually pay the artist because you know that music fans want to do that. Agreed. Of course, uh, we, we, all love to support and it feels good to, you know, support artists, especially the independent artists or the mid to lower tier artists. And that's a big uh, part of the listenership to this podcast. And also, Teddy, I mean, I came to know you through Jam Bass and, and then you're managing the slip and you've always been a champion of underground and independent artists. So not a huge cross section of artists, no matter the genre, have the nest egg or the foundation financially to set up a state-of-the-art, quote, professional situation or studio in their living room or may not have the ability to go to an empty venue or whatever it is. So for, for the, that, that level artist, uh, what is the, how would you streamline their, their pathway to you know, cultivating, whether it's a subscription base or just a, a presence so that they can deliver content to their fans, build their fan base and be compensated on some level. I mean, my mantra has always been be in every stream, you know, back in the early days of digital, when it was, you know, people were laughing at the revenues that were coming in from streaming. I still said, be, be in every service. You know, you never know how someone's going to stumble upon you or find you. Maybe some people only use YouTube. Maybe some people never use YouTube and they all use Spotify. Like, whatever it is, you've got to be in every place where they can be found. And yes, some of those stream rates are not, you're not, you know, paying rents on all these, but you have to start somewhere. And it's really, an, uh, you look to grow that on an order of magnitude. There are some basic social media skills that are, that, you can easily get to get to a, a level where you look professional and someone stumbles on it and they're like, Oh, cool. I want to listen to that. And then, and then go deeper and you need to be able to pull in the fans deeper and monetize the depth of that fan base. So somebody likes something, you need to be able to sell something. You never know who's going to buy what I always say, put out a deluxe edition as well as a regular edition of your record, because who knows how big of a fan someone is and they might be willing to spend 10 times the amount. So things will evolve. Like we alerted, we alluded to merchandise. We alluded to like simple paid uh, digital goods, 
you know, the, the, the ability to just transfer money to an artist. You need to be in all of these places to, to be able to start to use each one of their monetization options. Does that make sense? Ted, I totally agree. In fact, I was going to say something quite similar. I'd even add that it's hard to generalize for an artist because sometimes it depends on where your fans are. Certainly, you know, that you going to YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and Twitch where a lot of the, you know, where the fans are and TikTok too now has live streaming. Um, those are going to be good options, but you may also find that some of the smaller services work. Maybe there's, there's some new startups out there that are experimenting with reaching younger audiences and, and creating more of a, a TikTok-style interaction or working like – there's a company in, based here in San Francisco called Next where they'll, they'll work with kind of with artists that are, you know, up and coming, not signed yet, and, and have an algorithm that actually can figure out based on what I'm interested in, who I've been listening to, who else I might like. And they're doing that not with big-name artists, but with rising stars who have, don't even have a record label deal yet. So depending on the level of the artist and, you know, who you, where your fans are, it's gonna, it, may, it, may, it may be different. You might want to start out, make sure you're on all the big platforms for sure. But I would also recommend trying some of the more niche um, live streaming apps. I think there's that also you're seeing like uh shout out to uh Brownstein and the live lesson master site that I just learned about where you could actually like book a lesson with an artist. So you're actually in- interacting with that artist and uh, you know, there's sites like Cameo where you're, you know, you're basically paying for some interaction, but you know, it's that artist and you know that you're putting money into their pockets. So there's, uh, I think you want to be in at every price point from the casual fan to the super fan, you know, so that you can, um, that you can continue to earn a living. I know it's going to be tough for artists. I feel, I, I feel terrible. I, I wish there was more that we could do. We're sitting around here at home. You know, I, wish, I just wish there was an easy way for people to take some of the money they're not spending out and be able to give it to artists in a way that could actually uh, satisfy the demand. That's what we're working towards. I mean, collectively and individually, I know that that's a big part of what the nuts and bolts of what you both do professionally. And it's exciting times, as as we've acknowledged. It's frightening times and uh, uncertain, but certainly in this in this sector of of technology and live music, uh, it's become essential instead of a sort of you know. Uh, a luxury or just a, an alternative method of reaching your fans. It's become essential. And I think you both delivered a lot of really solid info and perspective. I wanted to ask uh, if either of you, if there was anything maybe I didn't ask or uh, a topic that you wanted to touch on while you had uh, some bended ears. I was going to just say, I think one thing I've been thinking about is both Ted and I have been in the digital music space for for a long time. And, you know, at the beginning of digital music, it felt like it was killing the music industry. There, it felt like to the artists that they weren't getting any money from it. There was never going to be any money, any way to get it, to earn anything. But look at it now, right? It's, it's Spotify is huge. Apple Music is huge. The music industry has grown significantly in the past few years because of streaming. So I think what we're, you know, we're literally a month or two into this new era of potentially more, you know, more digital live events. 
it's not that we're never going to go back to them physically, but I think we're going to see a, a lot more live streaming events. And it's, it's early, it's very early days. It doesn't mean that there's no potential to earn tons of money. It's just going to take a little while. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think the artist could still play the long game. This isn't a, we got to do this now and we got to have a super festival online tomorrow. You know, like I think you have to realize that the, yes, the world is going to change and people are now after this going to be more comfortable in doing more things online. So what's your connection? You know, I always ask artists, what's your connection to the world outside of just what you're playing? Like, what else can you bring in to sort of develop your, whatever that online persona is, whatever your, your vibe is, whatever you're interested in. You know, you can go beyond just this is, hey, this is my song, but how do you connect with other communities and bring people to your music as you're growing that reach, growing your social, you know, honing in on your socials, growing your email list, et cetera, um, you know, and, and having sort of a little bit of a long game. So you have some content to put out, right? Like you don't necessarily want to drop uh, all nine videos tomorrow. You need to entertain your fans for who knows how long. So be able to have something. That's why I, I'm very impressed with some of the artists that are doing those weekly. Like, Fish Tuesday night dinner and a movie. Like people are excited about this. And, you know, if Radiohead's going to do this regularly, like your people are going to notice and tune in, and it will it will change that behavior. That there's the saying. You know, we're going behaviors will be changed over time, and this event is going to. I, I think it's going to bring a lot more people online and be more comfortable with doing more things online. There's no way you could ever tell me that I was going to be on Zoom calls with like multiple parents and th different time zones, you know, and it's all happening. So the game is changing a little bit and it's nice to be with you during the evolution, Brian. Eloquently stated as usual, Ted, and thanks to both of you for, you know, making time for this. I, I have to say, I've really, on YouTube, I've noticed that the Roots have really revamped and revolutionized their whole situation there where they're doing all day uh brand new programming and erica badu is doing these house concerts where she charged one dollar then she charged two dollars so there there have been some like really interesting uh i guess transitions uh in real time for these artists that i've known and loved for a long time and i i really am just hoping that uh that can be the case for a number of the artists that we know and love and support and that was the real motivation for me to to reach out to you, Ted, and, and to create this roundtable, if you will, was to give, uh, you know, the folks out there, the fans, of course, but also the artists and the managers, something to chew on and, and something solid from some folks that know what they're talking about. So with that, I want to say a deep bow of gratitude. I ask all my guests uh, in this sort of COVID era, one question at the end of every interview, just a quick hitter. Since music is what brings us together, um, is there any artist or show or song that is getting you through? I mean, you stole the thunder by dropping about the quest because he, the, when he was doing the soul grooves on Sunday night, I went back and watched that a couple of times after because it was so good. The stuff that he's been doing and that whole roots programming, you know, shout out to quarter lab in Portland, the, uh, the Questless Supreme Live and Streams of Thought, all these guys, you know, Food for Thought, having Black Thought in the kitchen, like doing all these different things around that crew, like always innovative, always creative. That's been nice. Uh, I will admit I've been watching the 
a fish dinner and a movie uh, every Tuesday. That's been great. I haven't. Uh, I have. I've. I've watched literally everything I could get my hands on. I watched the Tweety Ripple with the sun. Um, I don't know. I watched. I literally have it all going by all the time. So I think the freshness is getting me through. Just finding something that I haven't seen, haven't heard. And, you know, it's really because there's not shows. It's really about release of archival, too. So that is, you know, something we've known for years, going back through the archives. But now you're going to see every band going through the archives. So we will see what kind of gold is unearthed here as we go through the archives. Good luck to you, B. Stay healthy out there. Thanks, bud. Liz, you got a song or uh, an artist you care to share with the folks uh, that you're really leaning on? Hi. I feel like I've seen more live music in the past four weeks than I have in the past four years. Even though I see a lot in person, it's it's so awesome to be able to just check out my favorite bands every day. Um, I'm excited today and over this weekend to check out some, some hip-hop because I think a lot of what I've been seeing has been more of my indie bands and kind of the genre that that Ted was just describing. So I'm psyched to see like Snoop and Migos in the trailer fest today and tomorrow. Right on. Yeah. I'm looking forward to checking that out. This is a big hip hop podcast as well. So uh, we'll definitely check in with Snoop and Migos and the squad. Well, uh, with that, I mean, it was so engaging, so informative, uh, really, really proud to uh, have hosted this with the two of you. And inevitably we'll check in with you both down the road to see, you know, where we're at, at that juncture. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. say thank you to my man Teddy K, Ted Kartsman, and of course Liz Moody for that thoughtful and insightful discussion about all things live stream. And please tell a friend if you found that interesting, and I'm sure there's a lot to chew on for the musicians and the managers and the publicists and the streamers, etc. And it was a honor and a privilege to be the host of such an esteemed pair of folks in the digital music space. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Teddy. Moving on to Josh Blake of IMAVL. Uh, Josh has been doing the damn thing down there in Asheville, North Carolina for 23 years. And with IMAVL, sounds like eight years or so. They are one of the preeminent live stream and concert broadcasting uh, entities or endeavors or companies, whatever you want to classify them as. But they are certainly community-rooted and uh, really just a beautiful example of what's possible in the realm of live streaming. And in that regard, I thought 
Josh would be an excellent person for live stream 101 episode of the Upful Life podcast. And therefore, I rang him up and we got into it on a number of topics, but primarily his experience building this company, what they do, how they do it, who they do it with, their partnerships. Really just a astounding tale of building something from the ground up and hope that can be inspirational to other folks out there wondering you know where or how they can see it's being done grassroots style independent artists just uh, amazing stuff from Josh Blake down there at IMAVL and shout out my man Barry to the B and Adam Strange uh, you're hearing uh, Josh Blake and Adam Strange, old school Granola Funk Express, live hip-hop band that they put together in the in the mid to late 90s in a rainbow family kitchen, and Josh tells a little bit about that too, but I was a huge fan and remain a huge fan of GFE, uh, one of the members of that group, uh, Agent 23, actually lives out here in Grass Valley, and uh, I intend to have him on the Up Full Life podcast in the not-too-distant future once we can track them down. With that, I'm going to play my favorite GFE-affiliated tune, Smoke and Roaches, Agent 23, the Galactic Federation of Earth Dwellers, GFE. This joint just goes so hard, and uh, I just hear it in my mind when I see Josh, or Cactus for that matter, and uh, I just want to play it for a second, and then we'll hear from Josh Blake out there in Asheville, NC. Up for Life Podcast, I'm your host, B. Getz. Smoking roaches. Picking them, tripping their jaws and shaking their drawers, hating the balls, flipping and getting applause. My style is kind of different because of its birthplace. I spent my first days rhyming, trippers in the earth's face. The interstate was my training camp, chilling by the on ramp. Or crossing the country like a stamp is a freight hopping train tram. Broke as fuck, smoking butts with a notebook open up. Trying to find perfection or at least come close enough. I focus love on a page to overcome rage and hate. Or move from state to state and learning how to create my fate. I wasn't raised by the street. I was Raised by the highway, drop migrate through tall trees, small towns, skyscrapers, psychedelic mind state, dropout, traveler, freestyle babbler, thrill seeker, mystery unraveler. Today I got my license. I started. Hey Josh, what's up? It's B Getz. What's up, man? Oh man, you know, welcome to the Upful Life podcast. Uh, it's been a long time in the making. Unfortunate, uh, the reason we're coming together, or I should say, the timing, but uh, it's really a a joy to finally connect with you on the show. Well, yeah, man. I mean, I know that we talked about it before and it was always something we were going to get down to at some point in person, but yeah, this is kind of forcing the issue. The fact that we can't be in person right now. Indeed. And we're still going to do that long, long form in person hang, uh, when the situation allows for it, we're off punishment finally. But in the meantime, I got to say, I'm stoked to connect with you, um, to check in with you about a, a variety of topics, specifically the live streaming thing. But before we get to that, um, I know you're in Asheville. I'm all the way out here in Northern California, not far from where I last saw you when Fish was in Tahoe, maybe about an hour from there. But uh, just give the folks at home 
maybe the 411 on uh, the local thing in Asheville in terms of like, how are people dealing? Are they social distancing? I know you're a parent, maybe what the deal is with schooling the kids at home. Anything you want to share about your your local reality? Um, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is a wonderful place to be this afternoon. Uh, talking with you about anything and, and, um, you know, Asheville, I think has been pretty similar to the rest of the country. We've been kind of under the quarantine orders for, I want to say maybe three and a half, four weeks now. And, you know, the kids are out of school. Yeah. Um, only essential businesses are open and, um, it was a little gradual, the, the slide into this new reality, you know, uh, it, but it was about a 10 day period where it kind of went from like, ooh, this might happen to, okay, we're all staying home now. And so, you know, people are trying to stay connected. Um, it's amazing that this is all happening during a time when we have the technology to stay as connected as we can, uh, whether that's the kids taking Zoom classes or I even have friends who are still able to like, you know, teach from home, um, who are like music professors and stuff like that. So, uh, the technology has been, been helpful, but yeah, in general, the reality in Asheville is probably similar to most, uh, towns, you know, it's downtown is dead. It's kind of refreshing, like driving around when I moved here, it was, uh, in 19, I first visited in 96 and then moved here in 97. And most of downtown was, was kind of boarded up and there was, you know, a lot of, not a lot of businesses in life. And that has gradually progressed into the city being, um, overrun with, with tourists really. And, and, and you go downtown on a weekend, it's like, you can't even park. It's, it's kind of a mess. And that's one of the complaints that a lot of locals have, but rolling around town now is kind of like, Ooh, this is the place I moved to. <laughs> Cause it's like, you go downtown and it's really quiet and there's, there's nobody out. And that part's kind of neat. Word. That, that's really interesting, just on a, a sociocultural level. I would love to explore that with you down the road, just because Asheville has really blossomed in a lot of ways uh, in the art scene and, and culture. Uh, it's such a metropolis for this thing of ours that you and I share with so many folks. And uh, just to hear you talk about it having arrived back in 97 uh, and, and where it is today, uh, I would love to hear just your reflections on that, but we'll, we'll save that for the in-person powwow, but that's really interesting. Right. Um, I wanted to just ask in general, um, cause obviously, uh, in addition to the IMAVL live streaming endeavor, you're a working musician. You just put out an album, you gig all the time. You host a, a weekly residency, which is a real hot, hot spot in your community. So, uh, how are you navigating the realities of, of the live event and performance shutdown? Well, you know, um, yeah, it's been rough. I mean, like myself and obviously a bunch of other working musicians, kind of there was one week where everybody was realizing, you know, damn, we're going to lose our, like maybe our whole summer's worth of gigging income. And so, you know, I personally have done like a little bit of the Facebook live thing and asking for some tips. I'm, I'm fortunate to kind of have a few different hustles, like you said, like the IMABL project. Um, 
provides work for me, whether it's production work or streaming services for people on random things. And then, um, you know, I have my engineering and producing stuff that I do too. So I, I, I've been able to, I've been fortunate to stay busy outside of like not having gigs, uh, not having the gigs definitely hurts. Um, and of course I miss it. Uh, I miss my friends. I miss the, you know, connecting with audiences and, and, um, and all the beautiful things that come with, with a live concert that we're all missing so much right now. Um, I just can't wait to get back out there and start jamming again. I'm playing a lot. I would say I'm playing almost a lot more than I used to just because I'm around the home a lot more and, and, uh, there's a little less to do. So like, you know, playing wise, like I've been playing a lot, I, you know, um, I don't, because I don't rely, uh, 100% on gigging. I have, like I said, other things. Um, I've been, you know, taking a little touch and go with, with the Facebook Live, ask for donations things. We'll probably do another one coming up here, um, where my wife is like leading all the songs, uh, in the, in the next week or two. But, um, I am like a lot of my friends who are just like, you know, grinding are, are, are on there every day, you know, playing a set for a couple hours and, and trying to make some rent money. So I know it's really tough for everybody right now in that industry. Um, and you know, there's no difference here in Asheville. There's, there's really no, nobody's going out to shows, you know, so people are trying to find new ways to, uh, to bring in that income through playing music. Yes, indeed. And, and I certainly want to discuss, um, you know, the live, the live stream you did with your wife and, and talk about your music. But, um, let's first talk about I am AVL, if only because the, the theme of this particular podcast episode, Isolation Station Volume Three, is, you know, the, and basically live streaming 101. Uh, I had a roundtable discussion that I told you about off air with some folks in the digital music space. But for the longest time, long before we got here, I've always admired and appreciated the work that you do with IMAVL. And dating back to even before I connected the dots, you know, one of your partners in the project, uh, Barry Bellamy, Barry to the B, as he is on socials. Um, yeah. He's such a, a crucial, you know, videographer and archivist in this uh, sort of funk world with Lettuce and Soul Live and, and sort of the extended artists in that in that scene and community. And of course, regionally, anything in the Southeast and, and AVL and surrounds, uh, Barry blanketed for a long time. And then I started to see all the amazing uh, product and output coming out of IMAVL. Well, some that come to mind are like that old school Nth Power thing that just got uh, broadcast in full. Yeah. And a number of really cool special sessions with like the Fritz, et cetera. So for the folks that don't know, because a lot of folks that are hearing your interview might not be uh, well aware of, of what is IMAVL, what you do and, and how you put it together. Can you kind of just tell the story of, of what it is and how you got here? Yeah, man. Um, so. You know, I guess to start, IMAVL, it's an acronym. Um, it stands for Independent Arts and Music of Asheville. Our actual LLC is just Independent Arts and Music. And, and that's a little bit, um, maybe forward thinking in, in, in the way that this model might be scalable to some other cities. Um, but really what happened, the, the genesis of it was, you know, I've been a musician and, and producer making music in this area, like I said, um, 
since the late nineties and then touring around the country and stuff. And, um, always coming home and being really grateful to be in Asheville and the community of people making music here was, was pretty small and tight knit. And there was only like a venue or two, you know, back then that you could play at. Um, but you know, over the years, uh, the, the town kind of got a reputation for being this, like, you know, just a little beacon of culture in the South. And, um, and, and we, we, I say we, like me and my friends, um, started to notice that, you know, I, like you said for a second before I host this weekly jam, it's called the Tuesday night funk jam. We've been doing it for 13 years. And I think I remember around, I, I just remember one year, I, I just noticed more people were coming, more musicians from outside of town were coming or coming through on their way through town and sitting in a funk jam. And I was, and then they're like, man, we're going to move here. This place is great. And, and just slowly watching the music uh, scene here, become more attractive to people who aren't living here, watching bands move here. Um, you know, I was talking with my friend Tom, Adam Strange from GFE, uh, and we were like, you know, we should do something to to try and uh, capture what's happening here right now. This is like a cultural renaissance, and, and we could maybe put something together that, that kind of can showcase it and also um, help our friends, you know, our friends who are musicians, like, Maybe we can create something that helps them push beyond the glass ceiling that you kind of have in a smaller town like Asheville. And uh, so that's kind of how IMAVL was born. Um, I called a bunch of friends. Tom and I had talked about it. He uh, came up with that acronym, which was super dope. And then uh, I called a couple other friends. One was an entertainment attorney. Um, with, you know, 30 years experience. Another one was my homie who's into archiving music. He was always out on dead tour and fish tour. He has like massive amounts of tapes and stuff like that. And that's Scott Reese. He's my business partner still. And um, of course, Tom and our friend, Josh Reinhardt, who was a web developer. And we sat down with like a bottle of scotch and a couple spliffs and decided this is something that, that we want to create for our city and we and we mapped it out a little bit and we we kind of took swings for the first year and a half being doing like little interviews and epks and throwing them on the website and trying to figure out what we could do but um scott was really into the archiving and recording of concerts and he went and streamed a show um and we put that on the site and then all of a sudden we were getting requests for people you know can you come stream and film our concert and, you know, we didn't set out at first to be, a, you know, specifically focused on live streaming, but it fell into that pretty quickly because we would go try to film somebody's show and realize that was taking a bunch of energy um, to get a crew there and everything. And, you know, we didn't have sponsors. We didn't really know how the money was going to work yet. And uh, we did realize that um, if we could set up some cameras and some venues and figure out how to turn them on um, remotely, and we would be able to stream people's shows a lot easier. So we spent like the first couple of years kind of dialing in this remotely operable live stream uh, rig to put into clubs. And this was before, I think, this was in 2012 when we started. So it was a little before the like, there was people streaming shows then for sure. Um, but it wasn't, you know, there was no Facebook Live. There was, you know, it wasn't as accessible of a, of a sort of, platform to share your music on so we were like you know navigating this space that was still kind of developing and trying to figure out how to set something up for our city that would be awesome and for the bands that 
they came through. And um, what we ended up with is, I think, like one of the first, if not only city in the world that has multiple venues um, dialed into one website where you can go there any given night of the week and watch like four or five concerts. And then all the archives are there. You know, and at one point we had, I think, six venues set up. We have five right now. And then, of course, um, that was kind of how that kind of kick started. And then, you know, we do this thing called Echo Sessions. We're based out of Echo Mountain Recording Studios because um, I was already here. You know, I had a space here that I rented as a producer and engineer. And then an office became available. So we put the INAVL project in the building and decided we wanted to uh, use the, you know, the, the magic of the facility um, to, you know, like put something together that was a little more special. And, and so we started doing these multi-camera shoots inside the studio. We call them echo sessions. We did about the first 10 on our own steam and then we finally got sponsorship and it sort of has been funded and been able to uh, run pretty seamlessly, uh, since then and um you know we 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 really benefited um from kind of being the only people in the city that were kind of doing this so like you mentioned barry to the b you know he's up in tennessee but like he would come around and like you know we're like hey man we're all doing we're we're all into the same you know shit and we're all like sitting here doing it let's let's hang out you know what i mean so we started to like make connections with folks like barry and then like uh a bunch of other, you know, cinematographers and videographers who are really good at what they do, um, but we're really bored of like, you know, doing corporate work or you know, court depositions. And so they'd be like, "Well, you guys are doing some cool stuff. We'll just hang out with you." So we we really benefited from you know having something fun for people who were who were really um, talented to work on, and that's kind of how we developed the video production team that we have. And so you know, we we have the web channel. Um, we go to concerts around the area, like, you know, downtown after five is a big outdoor concert or leaf festival, or, you know, anytime we can get out to a, a big outdoor event, you know, we'll, we'll bring the crew and film something. Um, and we post all those things, uh, on the website and the archives. And then we have the echo sessions, which, um, we're in season four on PBS now, uh, statewide in North Carolina. So we, we filmed those and then we rebroadcast them on PBS. We just moved into prime time for season four. And then, um, you know, we also function as a production company. That's like a side of the business side of it. That is another benefit is that, you know, we'll get hired and, and I'm, I'm really blessed to have, it's amazing that I can write checks to my friends for like, you know, something that was just kind of a pipe dream, you know, but like now we have a team. It's like we have done the video production for like Warren Haynes Christmas Jam for the last, I think, four or five years and, you know, other events at at that arena um, and Panic we've done and, you know, NPR we've worked with. So like we get hired out for things that are happening in this area just as a production company and that helps pay the bills and kind of we, we take some of that money and continue to fuel the dream of promoting Asheville's music scene through our web channel. And that's, that's kind of how it all happens in a nutshell. Um, and we're still, we're still out here doing it. I mean, w right now, you know, there's obviously nothing that we can stream that's live. So we've been dedicated to doing a bunch of rebroadcasts of, you know, some of our favorite shows we've been able to capture um, since we started. And, you know, just trying to try, trying to keep the music 
pushing out there. I mean, the, part of the, the belief behind what we do, and I know part of the belief behind what you do too, is that music is a powerful force. It's a it's a force of light. It's 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 uh, positive vibrations that we can push out <laughs> into uh, into the world to try to make it a better place for those that we love and even those that we don't know yet. And, and, you know, the, the web channel, the IMABL and all the things that we're doing with it, it's really just, uh, it's with that purpose. It's like, we, we want to make the world a better place. We want to keep pushing great music out there. We want to be, uh, a tool for, um, musicians coming through the area to use and to utilize, to help them further their efforts to do the same thing, um, to create a little more positivity in the world. And, so, you know, so far, so good. Um, we've been having fun doing it, that's for sure. <laughs> Aho, right on, man. I mean, seriously, that was so well articulated, and the way you told the story of how it came to be um, was just really fascinating. So, first of all, thank you for, you know, such a detailed uh, trip down memory lane. I got to say, you mentioned uh, a lot in there, but uh, just to touch on a couple things uh, you said people were already streaming right around. You guys got the engine started in 2012. Yeah, we were. I was living in Philly, where I'm from, that area, and working at a club called the Blockley. And one of my old uh, fish taper buddies, Doug Taper Doug, uh, he put together a streaming situation. We were using UStream, and we did a few shows out of the Blockley, like Marco Benevento and Lettuce and Break Science, etc. But then I want to say that was in like 2013 and right around that time or shortly after that time, I started to first see what you guys were producing and was just blown. I mean, the production uh, level was exponentially more professional and more together and more artistic in a, in a, oh, well, that's the first time anybody's ever called me professional, bro. <laughs> well, easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I meant it. <laughs> it's a term of endearment in this yeah. uh, situation, I promise. But yeah, it was just re remarkable. And I always kind of took note on uh, just that, well, we'll say the high quality production that was coming branded out of IMAVL. And that's going back, you know, maybe I picked up on it around 13 or 14. So, over, you know, six years, you guys have been just building something incredible. And as you so eloquently put it you know reinvesting not just the money from some of the work you're getting but the energy into the arts community uh locally and then of course uh nationally and i think that that's really uh admirable and and i wanted to spotlight that uh in our discussion here you know there's like a little nest eggs in these uh, metropolises or meccas of our culture, like a Denver, there's Color Red and there's IMAVL, where you are and what you're a part of. And it's important for these uh, endeavors to, to be supported and for people to know about them because it, that is an applicable business model for a lot of communities, not just live streaming, but, you know, in the arts culture, you know, the sort of reciprocal, it's almost like... A, theoretically like permaculture it's just you're reinvesting everything back into the culture and the process and it's rewarding you for that onward and upward and that's such an inspiring tale from just a business sense and a cultural sense so thank you uh for for taking the time to sort of you know bring us down that road and and that brings us to here and as you mentioned there are no live shows to stream in real time 
So you, you mentioned, you know, what IMAVL is doing, but for folks that, you know, aren't affiliated or don't have things on tape with you, if you wouldn't mind just maybe, what would you suggest to the independent artist? Uh, cause you're one of those too, and you're doing, uh, in-house live streams. What are some, maybe some, some advice you might give the independent artist or band, small band? Uh, that wants to, you know, perform for their audience in the digital space? Well, uh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I, I wish, yeah, I guess, since, yeah, I'm, like I say, I don't know if I'm an authority on what's going to work or not right now, but I, but I do think that it is important to stay engaged with your fan base. <clears throat> you know, I, I think that doing something, I think there's also the, a little bit of like maybe maybe don't oversaturate your your market. Maybe you're not going live every day. You know, I've seen people doing stuff that's like every Thursday at six or like you know what I mean. <clears throat> I think that that kind of could go a long way to give people something to expect and to know about. Um, not that it just all of a sudden pops up randomly in 20 minutes after you announce it. And uh, so I think treating the online concerts just like it's an actual concert that you're going to promote, make a graphic for it, you know, find a find a space that works that you feel like people will be on the Internet. Um, <clears throat> do your best to uh, connect with other. There's so many, so many people pushing out different live streams on these like uh, platforms that are trying to aggregate everything. So, you know, look into which ones of those like will help you out. There's plenty of Facebook couch tour type of groups and there's some websites out there. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> I think also stay, be, be in touch, man. Like, you know what I did today? Actually, I, I like wrote a bunch of, uh, I sent out a bunch of CDs and thank you notes to people who donated to me on, on the internet. <clears throat> when I did my live stream, I think that that that's I was just thinking that's probably really important right now for people to feel like any part of actual real we're connecting so much digitally, you know, but like, yes, yeah, send them something, you know, I mean, it's going to cost you 40 cents or, you know, 60 cents and even just a little note, people are going to appreciate that. I think it'll go a long way in the long run if you can try to stay connected to, to your fans um, and think of new and creative ways to do it. You know, I saw. um <clears throat> Like the drummer from Papadozia today posted a, a cool little snippet of him playing the drums by a river. You know what I mean? Well, that's a little different, you know. And then, of course, you know, test your stuff out. Make sure it sounds okay. That's always helpful. If you can up the production value of, of what you're putting out there, you know, that always that always will get it more views residually, which 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 will help down the road, too. So, um, yeah, production value, stay connected with your with your fans and 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 think of unique ways to do it that's that's what that would be my advice word yeah i i noticed uh that when even like as high profile and technologically savvy a guy like the rizza when he went and did that epic battle the other night with uh dj premier which was one of the maybe the best night of my quarantine it was i was a kid in a candy store but you know their production Amazing. but their production was pretty pretty you know, meager for, for lack of a better term. And they, they didn't really have it dialed. And obviously Bro, <clears throat> I wanted to, I was like just holding back in the chat room being like, I'm on my way. <laughs> I'm going to come help fix this shit right now. Cause like, yeah. I know what's going on, man. Like, uh, and I will tell you this, man, there's not too many people in the world and there are plenty of them, but who know the stress of shit not going right when you're doing a really high profile live production, 
that is a uniquely awful feeling. And, and so I was feeling for them in that moment, um, you know, almost 200,000 people watching and it's really just not sounding great. What are you going to do? And I'm like, well, you know, next time you guys know, let's figure this out <laughs> in advance. You know what I mean? Seriously. But it didn't take away too much from how incredible of an experience that was, but you got to hope no, they learn. And, and it really was. And, and a, a, a testament to the strength of what's possible in this medium uh, you know, when folks give a shit and are emotionally invested in what's happening. So I hope that people can, you know, revisit that and, and kind of just glean some sort of inspiration for this format from that experience. Now, we touched on for a second, you had did a live stream uh, with your wife in a duo setting. Um, and you just, or I shouldn't say just, but within a year, ago released the solo album so i wanted to give you the opportunity just to let folks know what what your work is about what your music is about and anything you want to share with the writing process recording process working with your wife what have you right uh well you know i'm fortunate to have a partner who also loves to to make music and we do it a lot of different ways um what you're mentioning the other night was like an acoustic set and you know Myself, you know, my background, you know, being kind of like a hippie kid moving into hip hop because I was always into hip hop when I was in high school, too. I I fell into the GFE thing and then toured with a live hip hop band for a long time. Um, And then in town, you know, when I'm playing around town, I've got my organ trio, J-Bot. That's the thing that I'm playing the most with uh, and and, I'm hoping to hit the road with a little bit. Um, and then, I, and then I do the Tuesday night funk jam. So the music that I'm usually making out on stage is in that like funk, um, you know, category and, and, uh, and, and then, uh, it doesn't stop me from writing songs though. And I always have written songs. So I, I, I about, you know, a year and a half ago, or maybe it was two years ago, I was like, you know, I got these songs and I, I started to play around with them a little bit and I was like, you know, these would sound really good if they were like, it was, if it was an all acoustic band. So, so I put out this acoustic record, it's called nothing's in the way. And, uh, it's not at all really the music that folks will see me playing on stage very often. You know, I maybe played like two acoustic shows in the past year. Um, whereas I probably played like, you know, a hundred plus whatever funk shows. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, the album came out great. Um, I'm, I'm proud of the, all the, the, the way it came out. The people that contributed is amazing. I've got like an incredible crew from Asheville. Um, <clears throat> of course, my wife is on there singing. Woody Wood, who's a legend here, and and uh, and Phil was playing drums. Let's see, Marcus King. Marcus King plays on three tracks on this record. Um, pedal steel mostly, and then uh, who else? Matt Williams. You'll have to get the record and check because I'm going to space people's names. But there's just a ton of people that helped with it. Uh, and um, it came out great, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm creating stuff all the time. Like right now, <clears throat> what I'm really trying to work on is um, a beat project. So like I've always made beats because I'm, you know, the hip hop background. And then uh, I'm, I'm actually remixing a bunch of Echo Sessions artists that for, with the, that I realized I have all these multi-track shows from all these people who've come through so I can sample anything. You know what I mean? Any instrument or any hit that any of these people have done it's crazy. So I was like, when I realized that I was like, I'm going to make a, a, just a beat tape. That's like, and it's called echo, echo session sessions. It's going to be like a, 
remix. I've already got a few of them done. I got the Nth Power one. I got one for Making Movies, Resonant Rogues, um, John Stickley Trio. Um, and then I'm, I've got a few more that I'm working on now. So, you know, I, I, I'm all over the place a little bit musically for better or worse. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going I'm to play just about all of it. But um, <clears throat> we have this... Uh, me and my wife have been linking up the loop stations, so we have this. She, she likes to play drums, so we have this. It's really just a basement band right now called Hype Machine, but um, that's like the duo with the loop, you know, dance party project. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of the things that I'm working on. Um, all that, so, you know, if anybody listening wants to check out more about me or any of that stuff, is I have a website, joshblakemusic.com. It's all there. You can... You can uh, dig in and there's links there for like you know you want to come record here just holler at me dude i'm I'm ready to work as soon as the studio opens back up <laughs> and we'll figure out how to do it remotely in the meantime right on homie we'll definitely put the uh link to nothing's in the way in the show notes and also sure. put a link to uh imavl in there for the studio stuff as well and yeah, man, I know you got a lot of irons in the fire, both with IMAVL and, of course, your myriad of music projects. But you you hinted at a few times, and I'd be remiss. I have you on the phone. Uh, I'd have to shout out my guys, uh, Dom D and Kev Cavanaugh and Eric Carlson, who, you know, that's my GFE crew from back in the day. Uh, oh, geez. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I was kind of always on the outskirts. I mean, I, I'm. I remember the first time I saw y'all, like, uh, kind of guerrilla style. I want to say the lemon wheel or the went up in Maine. And then, you know, you guys would sort of piggyback on some fish tours and play late night after shows, uh, you know, in Albany and Boston and et cetera. I probably saw GFE 25 plus times and, uh, wow. definitely a fan. I mean, just rolling with the crew after fish shows at festivals, et cetera. Um, yeah. I would say two dozen times for sure. And, uh, always been a huge fan. I'm standing here talking to you in the outskirts of Grass Valley where your former bandmate Cactus, Agent 23, lives with his wife and kids. And you mentioned Adam Strange, who you still do a lot of work with. I still occasionally will uh, listen in for like whatever foul mouth jerk is up to. So when we get the in-person hang, we're going to go deep in the granola funk rabbit hole. But just for now, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just a reflection, if you want to tell a story, talk about what GFE m- means to you all these years later, um, wherever you want to take the, the GFE thing for a hot second. Well, man, uh, interestingly enough, you know, and you say, not that you say it like necessarily out of turn, because we don't really do anything anymore. So it would be like, yeah, you know, former bandmate Cactus, but the overall sentiment amongst the band is that we never broke up, man. We're still here, you know, <laughs> it's like we, he, he lives out there, but like we played a show together last year and they, we just don't get to do it very often anymore. Um, but it is a thing. And it's like the, really the thing behind it is that it, that made it a little different. I think than a lot of other bands was the family aspect of it. It's like a rainbow kitchen morphed into a, a touring circus basically and uh with with uh, hip hop um as its backbone but also rooted in psychedelia and like live instruments and and you know the shows were uh you know it, it wasn't like it's the the shows weren't about musicianship where like there's a lot of bands are like flexing their chops and stuff it was about the energy and the lyrics and the message and 
um, through all of that, we were able to cultivate like a, a really incredible and, um, and beautiful following. And, and, uh, you know, all of the things that we were talking about for the most part are like, you know, super positive, you know, earth changing society, changing thoughts and, and trying to get people to, you know, believe in themselves and, and, uh, foster their creativity and, you know, fuck the government if it's doing something wrong, you know, like all these different messages that we put across through different songs. And, um, and we found a lot of family that way. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's, you know, it's still out there. Like you said, like, we're all, <clears throat> we're all spun off doing a bunch of different music, um, and things, but we still love to get together when we can and play, um, and collaborate and, you know, I'll, I'll throw some guitar on Jerk's thing or like, you know, Tom's got some stuff he wants to work on now. Um, man. Yeah. I've, I've, <clears throat> what's that? I didn't mean to jump in on you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was just drifting a little bit about the GFE thing. I collaborated. I have this other album I did where um, it's called Spaceman American. It's not out yet, but Colonel Bruce is the narrator on this one. Whoa! But that that was like uh that was an album that um I collaborated with a bunch of the different GFE like Cactus is on it and then all the other MCs are on it um at different times and stuff so yeah we still work together we're still we're, we're still out there like um doing it as we can but you know the machine got a little bit tired and sure so we all so we all just kind of like you know. S- s- slid off into these different directions and, and, and started to foster new ideas and thoughts. And, uh, it's evolution, man. That's evolution. Exactly. I mean, and yeah, dude, like it's amazing when you isolate the different folks from each other and see like what each has grown in their, in their musical and artistic lives uh, since the heyday. And I didn't mean to talk about it in the past tense. I was thinking when you said that, you know, I actually remember watching uh, a GFE show maybe two years ago, live streamed from Asheville. It was like a reunion of some kind. Um, yeah. So it's almost like a full circle thing, given the nature of our conversations. And you talk about like the the family aspect. You guys were such a band of misfit, like sort of unicorns. Everybody was so strange and beautiful in their special way. And they brought that to the stage. And of course there was no barrier physically nor, uh, symbolically between the band on the stage and, and your sort of like traveling circus, as you put it. And it was such a, a, in its embryonic uh, situation, you know, like in its roots, like you talked about it, blossoming from a rainbow family kitchen into the the realms of hip-hop and psychedelia and you guys really were the the purveyors of that because you know the fish and dead thing i mean i I lived in burlington in the late 90s i went to college there and i remember you guys playing a show at club metronome on main street and the giant huge poster art for that show was the grateful dead dead set cover the bridge but it was like altered for GFE and you, you rechristened yourselves, uh, Galactic Federation of Earth Dwellers. That's what the poster said. And it was the dead set cover, but it was slightly tweaked for GFE. And, you know, I'm a fucking, you know, I grew up on the beasties and hip hop. I'm from Philly area. I love the roots live hip hop band. So to stumble upon that at like 98 or 99, it spoke to me in such a profound way. Like, wow, like I can love hip hop and be a deadhead 
and like be proud of both. It's not this like uh, you're with us, or you're against us shit that you're always taught when you're growing up, like what click you're in and who you claim and all that shit. You guys were so, you broke down that barrier at an embryonic point in time in the culture. And look now, like look how uh, that particular world, the sort of diaspora of the Grateful Dead and Fish, has has just embraced and incorporated hip hop into you know its modus operandi it's it's beautiful thing and i know you're too humble to take any responsibility for it so i'm going to hang it on you myself (laughs) well thank you brother yeah man i mean you know we did our thing and uh wow what a beautiful thing it was man we had such a great time when we were so did we Right on. The last question, because I really appreciate you gave me a lot longer time than I asked for. Um, The last question that I'm asking everyone that's coming on the Isolation Station shows on this Upper Life podcast, uh, music, as you so beautifully stated, is what brings us together. It's why I'm talking to you. It's how I know you. It's how people are knowing to listen to the show or, of course, how they know you through your music and your work in the music industry. So point blank, what music... What show, what artist, what album, what song is getting you through uh, this time in our lives? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I, 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 I would be hard for me to say one person, but... Nobody has said just one, just so you know. But, but you know, the, the thing I think that has been most inspiring... First of all, I'm a very random listener when it comes to listening to music and... A lot of times for work, I'm like listening to music all day. So I end up like just listening to NPR on the way home or something, you know. But really the inspiration for me has been watching the way my friends have been uh, figuring out how to continue to create and push their art out when they don't have crowds to play for. That's that's really been like and watching them take risks uh, online, you know, learn and push themselves in new directions. That's that's super inspiring for me. Um, just watching people be stuck at home and be real and, and watching their creativity blossom in a, in a way that it's been forced to, you know, that it wouldn't have otherwise. And, and that is a little bit of the silver lining of this situation for me. Um, otherwise, I mean, you know, when I put on music at home, a lot of times it's like some instrumental stuff, uh, you know, depending on my mood, Krungbin or some, you know, Yao Gilberto or like, so just some like, he's not always instrumental. Like, just like I, I put, I put on kind of that. I, I, I discovered this band, Aikibe Shakedown. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Oh, of course, man. Uh, Brooklyn Afrobeat band. They made my best albums of 2018. They're a great band. Oh, did they? Yeah. I just discovered them recently. So I wormholed their playlist for a while. And, um, I, I, when I thought about this, somebody asked me this a while ago, I end up listening, you know, I'm like super into lyrics and, and songs. I love songs, but I end up like when I'm putting music on at home, it's usually like just something instrumental, you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, the, the real inspiration has been coming from just watching the creative sector figure out its thing right now. You know, like that's, that's kind of like, uh, that's, that's what, make keeps me happy and moving forward and also us you know it keeps me inspired to do the same thing personally and then also um what can we do with imavl to help also you know we set up a donation portal on our website so people can start kicking money to artists if they're watching them there and that's been successful um 
you know, I, I just, I think that we're at such an interesting time in history. Uh, we're going to see, and we, we are seeing um, things being created that, that we would never have been treated to before. So uh, I think, you know, if anybody's out there lost in the struggle, just, you know, take a little bit of, of, uh, of happiness out of that. Like, you know, we, we, we have a lot of positivity being pushed out there by the family every day and people out there still working to try to, uh, support this industry and provide relief for artists. And, um, you know, that whole together we are stronger sentiment. It definitely is, uh, is is happening amongst the music industry right now too and i think that's a very beautiful thing also indeed man it's reciprocal the inspiration that you uh you get from the folks you see out there doing the damn thing like you described that inspiration goes back into what you do which in turn inspires others and that's why i'm calling you that's why i do the show why I'm doing this particular type of show at this time. So I, you know, seen and overstood as the Rasta say. And, uh, uh, thank, thank you so much, Josh, for the time and, the, you know, really detailed personal reflections and breakdowns of everything that is going on with you and IMAVL. And we're definitely going to have to hit on, uh, you know, the way back machine with granola funk when we're sitting you know a few feet across from each other sharing us sharing a beverage and uh having a laugh i can't wait for that man and it's been a, it's been an honor to be here man on this show dude i've been listening to it for a minute so um excited to be a part of that thanks for thanks for hollering yeah man it's an honor and a privilege to speak with you man stay safe you your wife and children and we'll check in with you down the road when we have a little bit of a better idea of what's coming. All right, brother. say thank you to my man Josh Blake down there in Asheville, North Carolina. Big Tings, I am AVL. Check them out. Just a beautiful story building from the ground up. Um, and gotta show love to the GFE, Granola Funk Express, Galactic Federation of Earth Dwellers. That's how I first got put on to Josh Blake way back in the day. And uh, it's just really incredible to see uh, what he's done in his 23 years down there in Asheville so shouts Josh Blake will have you back down the road to talk about the whole journey and another person I'd love to have on the show to talk about his whole journey is my next guest Chris Gilbuta but we get a shorter check-in with him as been the par for the course for the isolation station series now Chris Gilbuta is a singer-songwriter based out of Nashville and he's really a Chicago cat who moved to Nashville in search of the songwriting dream, which he has 
and continues to realize, not just down there in Nashville with the country scene, where he's a major cat, but also with the likes of uh, John Legend, Megan Trainer. He's writing with Mike Gordon. You'll hear him talk humbly uh, about some of the shit he gets into. But he's uh, just one of the most hilarious dudes I know. Also a very accomplished songwriter. And he's been on stage as a member of Phil and Friends a couple of times. Uh, I went out here and caught that engagement two nights. Of course, uh, he was a member of the Ghost Unit record with Van Ghost, where that was recorded up at the barn in Vermont, Trey's personal studio where many Fish records were created. So we get into all that and we get into his hilarious uh, online Fish commentary. And of course the fanaticism when it comes to Fish and his just ardent study of the group and his uh, exuberance when they really knock it out of the park. And of course the sardonic wit and sort of jaded hater that comes out every now and again when Buddha gets going. Um, so with that, uh, we had him on the show because he's been doing some sweet live streams for charity and some really uh, righteous causes. So I wanted to give him a platform to talk about that and just talk about, you know, live streaming as a singer-songwriter and conveying the music in that capacity. And really all this to say it was an excuse to get my man Buddha on the horn for the pod. With that, a little bit of Neil Francis changes on the Up Full Life podcast, episode 31, Isolation Station, volume 3. And here comes Chris Gelbuda. Buddha, it's B. Getz. What's up? How you doing, my friend? Good, how are you? I'm also good, man. I cannot complain, uh, but I also, you know, it's tough times for everyone, and that's, you know, unfortunately, the reason I'm calling you is, is for this sort of uh, isolation station podcast. I really look forward to a time when we can be uh, in the same place and hanging out, and we could do a, a proper career-spanning conversation interview but i want to welcome you to the up for life podcast it's been a while that uh, we wanted to have you on well, thanks for having me glad to be here indeed man and as i was telling you when i hollered at you we're doing these sort of brief check-ins with different people in the music culture during this quarantine and this particular episode's a primarily revolves around live streaming and I had the pleasure, along with my fiance, out here on this ranch in Northern California that we're quarantined at. We got to tune in to your live stream uh, solo acoustic concert last night. So first, let me say thank you for you know providing that for the people. What is your like impressions after you come off of a performance like that? How do you feel? Well, I, I probably never would have done it had this quarantine not happened. And I think a lot of musicians are in the same boat um, because I'm just, I'm not really a performer. Um, that's not my bread and butter as a musician. So I always just kind of left that space open for the people that, 
do perform for a living. Um, but just recently, in lieu of recent uh, events, I thought, well, I, you know, I just had a tour of Napa canceled and a bunch of other tours canceled. So I thought, what the hell? So I started doing it, and I, I like it. It's it's a lot of work, though. I have a lot of respect for people who stream for a living on, like, Mixer and uh, Twitch and stuff like that because it, it really – it's not easier than playing a live show, I can tell you that. Right on. Yeah, well, you know, I know that you are, you know, a professional musician in a variety of capacities. So you mentioned that performance isn't your bread and butter. You wouldn't know uh, by listening or watching. And I've had the pleasure of watching you in a number of combinations through the years, and I'd love to touch on those. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the different live streams you did. Before the one you did last night, uh, which was really awesome, and and you played a number of tunes that I really adore, you did a pair of live streams for uh, for Righteous Causes. Could you talk a little bit about what that was about and, and how you sort of catered those streams to those circumstances? Well, the first stream I did was for a, actually a personal friend of mine who uh, is a, a good friend of mine from Nashville. And he just had twins two days after the tornado in Nashville destroyed his business, which was Three Crowbar in, in uh, East Nashville. And it tore the roof off, so he lost his job and then had twins two days later, and then the pandemic stuff hit. So, you know, I like to try to be a part of broader charities and not just operate within my own personal bubble, but it seemed like the most pressing thing to do at the time was to make him a few thousand bucks to help him breathe easy so he could just, you know, enjoy time with his family and and forget about the rest of the BS going on in the world. So that was the first one we did, and then – The second charity we did was through my uh, Songwriters in Paradise uh, outfit I work with, which we just go all over the world and play songwriter shows and generally raise a lot of money for charity. Um, Like we raised a couple million for the Bahamas last year after their tornado. We just sent over uh, a fire truck and a bobcat and some other kind of cranes and stuff to help get our friends in the Abacos back on their feet again. So the second stream was sort of geared toward those charities and Music Cares as well, which uh, helps musicians from everything from substance abuse to just keeping food on the table during things like this quarantine. So um, I've been lucky to be a part of a lot of cool uh, nonprofit things over the years, so I was glad to be able to help. Yeah, that was really awesome, and I know that you know it was much appreciated, not just by the beneficiaries, by by the fans. It's awesome when you see a selfless acts like that, and you taking the time, and obviously you take your craft very seriously, and putting that intention towards it is just really awesome. I just wanted to give you a platform; people know that that's what's happening with Chris Galbuta. Now you talk about like songwriting, and you know I know you. As as a, a dude that we hang out at shows, and I've seen you perform, as I mentioned, but, you know, you are a renowned and re- uh, successful and respected songwriter in several genres. What was the story? Uh, I, I understood you to be like a Chicago dude, but you're talking to me from Nashville. I knew you kind of moved to Nashville in search of, you know, this sort of uh, songwriter dream, if you will. Uh, tell us your story just a little bit about, like... I don't have a lot of songwriters on the, you know, specifically on the show. I have a lot of performers and people that write songs, but not a lot of folks that would define themselves as a songwriter. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, I actually, like when I was younger, I really wanted to be uh, in a band with my buddy driving around the country and doing that 
thing in a van that a lot of our mutual friends do still. A lot of them are actually in buses and stuff now, thank God. But um, I started in college just playing in a sublime tribute band because I it just brought people out, as embarrassing as that is. Um, and I started kind of getting into the jam scene. I always wanted to do something like Trey, just kind of do like a, a really cool jam bandy kind of thing. And then after years of touring, I started writing because I just, I didn't, I could, didn't see me being able to sustain that lifestyle into my adult years. Cause I've, to put it lightly, I went pretty hard <laughs> in those years. So I started writing songs and um, going to like expos and conventions for songwriters who are beginners, um, learn how to navigate the business and navigate TV and film and radio and publishing all these things that are not the fun parts of the music business, but they're necessary if you want to get paid. So I started going to those things and got discovered by a lady named Carla Wallace. And she signed me to my first publishing deal in my mid twenties. And I've just been writing songs in Nashville ever since. That's incredible, man. Just starting from a beginner and, and a few workshops and trusting your muse. You've written for some major major artists right like megan trainer and john legend do you have any like of those particular songs or experiences that are your most treasured or any kind of stories attached to those you know bold font artists if you will well i mean megan was always exciting because even though she's like a pop star and all that kind of stuff on a human and, and professional level she's just like one of the most talented people I've ever met. And when you, if you ever get a chance to be in the same room as her, when she's making music, it's like, no matter how much talent I'm surrounded with, I still am always in awe of her. So that was one of the more exciting times of my life, just because we sold millions and millions of records. And, you know, I was, I didn't even have a bet at the time when I started working with her. So my life changed a lot after that, but I was actually looking through my Instagram the other day and I, you know, I was, some of the more exciting folks I've written for are like Robert Randolph. And, um, you know, I've been writing with Mike Gordon from fish a little bit. And, um, it's just exciting because I never, I never really would have got into those rooms with my musicianship. I got into those rooms by being a writer, which always kind of geeks me out because, you know, I just followed my path of what I felt like I was supposed to do. Cause there's plenty of, I know I'm a decent guitarist and stuff, but there's like plenty of people, I would put in rooms with these guys before me if it was based on purely musical level. So I geek out over stuff like, you know, Phil Lesh and Robert Randall. And, um, you know, even some of these country stars uh, get me pretty excited because it's not everybody's cup of tea, but they have something to offer. Of course they do. And you know, I, I don't doubt it. And, of course, Nashville is the is the mecca for all that. Um, how is that? Cause I, I want to touch on you playing with Phil Lesh and some other stuff, but how is being existing and, and, and being prolific and, and a presence in that sort of Nashville country world is such, it feels like light years away from, you know, the, the world that I know you from, the sort of greater dead fish, uh, jam fest diaspora, but you coexist and, and are active as a musician and a personality in both. How is, how is country, how's that whole world just different? Well, it's different because those songs, like what people come to a country song for is usually it's like this one way that they turn the phrase with the title and they make it mean one thing 
and then it means something else at the end of the course. And it's like people really come to country for the lyrical content. They obviously don't care about, um, you know, the musical aesthetic because it all pretty much sounds the same unless you're living inside of these songs every single day. It sounds very homogenized to the untrained ear, and I totally understand that. But that's the biggest difference is that I don't think people come for the music as much as they come for the stories and the lyric and the brand of the singer and the person singing it. And like what, you know, like what Mario Kart character are they on the array of characters they have to choose from. And it didn't always used to be that way because country music is really derived from jazz. If you listen to really old country music, it's, it's jazz and it's gospel music. And it just sang with a, with a country voice. So that was, that's the biggest difference. And also just the business aspect is, completely based around a song when you take these meetings trying to get a record deal or something you're not sitting down saying okay well these are the these are the tickets we're selling and this is how we're doing on merch and you know these are our tour expenses none of that's being discussed you're literally coming in there you're sitting down with someone who can make or break your career and you're just playing them a few songs and if that guy gets or that gal gets jazzed enough on you they can give you a career so that's very different from the jam scene where you have to build something from scratch start from the ground up. Rarely do people have label support. And if they do, it's still not going to cover all, if not, if even half of their expenses. So it's just a totally different business mindset and approach. And they both are cool in, in different ways, but that was the biggest shocker for me, but it was also a welcome change after grinding for a decade and a half on the road. So I have no doubt, and that's precisely the type of answer I was hoping for, just the, the breakdown and the dichotomy. So thank you for, you know, just explaining how you can kind of write songs in one world and still, you know, be a major cat in another world. And by that, I mean, I remember what it was like when you got drafted by Phil Esch from The Grateful Dead to be a, a member of Phil and Friends for a two-night engagement out here at Terrapin. And that was just such an amazing time period but then also just to kind of be your homie and sort of along for the ride like that was just extra special can you just i know it's been probably close to two years now but reflect just uh, with the validation the euphoria the the anxiety of of not only being asked to play with phil but doing it in his house in his club in his town that's just incredible yeah i still can't believe it happens sometimes. I don't know if it'll ever happen again. Um, it happened because uh, of uh, songs I had been writing with Robert Randolph, and we keep in close contact whenever he's in Nashville. And we, you know, we always try to write something when he's in town. And one day he just texted me and he was like, "Yo, do you know any Grateful Dead songs?" And I was like, "Yeah, I, I know pretty much all of them, you know." And they uh, they got me on that gig, and it, it was stressful, you know, because. Uh, I had actually talked to Mike Gordon just before I went out there. He said, hey, I heard you're doing this gig. Give me a call. I have some insights. And I called Mike, and he said, um, learn every single song. He said, learn Pride of Cucamonga and learn Slipknot and learn all the parts of songs that you always kind of glazed over because I just feel like those are the ones he called. Every time I came unprepared, it was always the songs I didn't know that well. So he's like, how much time do you have? I said, I have a week. He said, well, I'd sit down for a week and I'd work 10, 12 hours a day at these songs. So that alleviated a lot of the stress. Um, it was a, If you were there, I'm sure you remember, there's a lot of point guards when I played. It was uh, Carl Denson and and uh, Barry Sless and Scott Metzger and me and Robert Randolph. 
<clears throat> so I really kind of laid back, but it was validating when he invited me back for another two night run, uh, like a month after that. So that, that felt good to actually get to come back and lead the band that time. And I got to sing a lot of songs and had a little more room to play around with Phil. And I'm, I'm just blown away by that guy. He, he, he embodies everything about the Grateful Dead. And I learned so much in the 15 or 20 hours I've spent with him. Uh, just incredible stuff I've taken away, especially just about like the approach to entertaining people and how much what they think matters versus how much what you think matters. And just the attitude in general, I'll never forget the stuff he taught me. Word. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. And geez, shedding for a full week, getting that from, from Mike Gordon, like, Hey, you better study up. You know, you, you might have thought you laid back and maybe I guess you didn't lead the band, but your presence was felt and you definitely uh, brought an energy that um, maybe, you know, I'm partial because I am your friend and I was definitely paying a lot of attention to you, but it was just really a beautiful thing to, uh, to just take in. And I felt your pride and it's awesome that you got a chance to come back and even maybe have an even more prominent role. Now uh, pivoting, I know as much as you, uh, you know, pray to the altar of the Grateful Dead, much like myself. You're, you're a fish kid first and foremost. Um, and I want to talk fish, but I first want to talk about your pilgrimage to the barn to make a record with uh, our dear mutual friend, Michael Berg, along with Jen Hartswick, a number of others, the Van Ghost record, Ghost Unit, which I had the pleasure of writing a detailed feature on probably right around the time I met you or shortly thereafter. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what your reflections are of that whole experience, the studio, the crew, and of course the record. Well, again, it was one of those situations where I, I just found myself pinching myself because this place was, it was never a place I ever dreamed I would get to go and hang out. And um, especially with such an amazing group of people, we obviously had Jennifer and Natalie and we had um, Chris Chu on the bass who had a long career with the Mississippi All-Stars, and uh, Nick Casarino and John Staten, just an incredible lineup of people. So that made it even more special. But, yeah, I mean, we were in, we were in Trey's uh, little temple, man, and, I mean, it's adorned with, with fish from head to toe in r really subtle ways. So, like, you know, there's a Frank Zappa light switch cover in the amp room, and <clears throat> there's a little – what are they called? SRT TVs upstairs above the barn. There's a little loft and there's a little TV there with like six VHS tapes that haven't moved in 20 years. And there's like the bed where Trey does an interview in bittersweet motel and like his bookshelf full of books. And it's just like, it's just like if it was my barn and I went there, it's like all of his stuff was there. So it was really um, mind bending. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, we had a guy named Ben Colette that engineers, a lot of the live fish post releases and uh, he's engineered a lot of Trey stuff in the past also. And he was fantastic and really made us understand the room because it was a big room to sing in. Like it's not really a place that has a vocal booth and they've tried things in the past, like the, like the, the octagon or whatever, the seven sided thing that Fishman used to play inside of it was an atrocity. But um, we learned that, the, you know, a, a part of the recording process that I had lost touch with was, put five or six or seven people in the room together at the same time and get your sound dialed in and play a song until you capture something magic, you know, at the same time together. 
because, you know, the Nashville way of making music is, you know, bring in your team of, of hitters and they do their thing and you'll, you'll comp stuff or you'll move stuff or you'll take better takes from here and there. And we didn't really do that. We, we got in the room together and we put on our headphones and we spent hours getting mixes ready just to perform a song for 10 or 12 minutes. But it, that's, that's what it used to be like to make a record with a band, you know, and it was so, it was good to go back to that and then be surrounded by this room that, you know, made one of my heroes so happy. I just, I could feed off that energy. Everybody could feed off of it. We were all geeking out the whole time. Yeah, you can feel just a real familial fabric and just beautiful, inviting energy in that record. You know, I'd seen Van Gogh perform at Bear Creek years earlier, but wasn't really aware of, of a whole lot about the story. But I really adore the Ghost Unit album, and it, that was a beautiful reflection, man. Uh, I know that, you know, we've talked about some, you know, serious topics and some generally straightforward storytelling and such, but one of my favorite, uh, facets of you, Chris Galbuta, is your sardonic wit, uh, when, you know, commenting on the fish from Vermont, whether it's in real time when you'll host sort of like a, a live stream commentary or, you know, in between and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's like, what are we going to talk about with fish? I could ask you a number of things, but let's start with the here and now. Um, what are your uh, initial thoughts or say maybe, I guess about two weeks in now to Sigma Oasis? Well, to be totally honest, uh, I feel like fish has moved past some of those songs they're going to put on that record just as a band. But Overall, I think it's one of the more uh, sonically beautiful recordings Fish has made in years, probably since, I mean, before Round Room, maybe. I mean, in terms of the string arrangements and everything, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think I think Mike is playing the best he's played in his career, and I think Fishman and Page are, are holding up to my expectations. I think Trey is, is kind of all over the place. I'm not really a fan of Trey's tone right now. It sounds a little bit like a mosquito in an aluminum can when I hear some of those solos, but he's allowed to experiment. You know, we all have our specific tray tones we like amongst us fish kids, but overall I think it's great. And I think you can tell the band is in a good place. And I think that they, there's some soul to those recordings. That's going to be hard to recapture live. And I think that's, you know, with a band like fish, I don't really like when their albums sound exactly like they sound live. You know, I, my favorite Fish album is probably Billy Breathes. And, and uh, you know, there's just some amazing arrangements in, on that record. And I think that for 3.0, Sigma Oasis is going to stand out as one of the, probably one of the better records to listen to on vinyl, if you ask me. But that's, overall, I think it's a win. Yeah, I would concur. I First of all, I absolutely adore Billy Breathes. I, I don't listen to a whole lot of Fish Studio, especially these days, but uh, that album just sonically and, and the songs, the delicateness of, of the ballads and stuff, I'm not surprised that you feel similarly. With Sigma Oasis, yeah, it was when they teased it, I kind of thought it would be some stuff I wasn't unfamiliar with, but it was quite the opposite. It was kind of like a look back at the grab bag of songs that maybe they hadn't laid down and, of course, a couple from here or there in between. And uh, no no surprise, or maybe a little surprise, it wasn't recorded in the barn, as I understand, right? It was in Nashville. Yes, it was recorded at Soundstage. And every time Fish is in town, I have friends of mine that are at these same studios, and they're, like, sending me pictures of Trey's guitar, and I'm just like, don't send me that, because <laughs> I'm going to want to go over there and hang out, you know? 
But yeah, they they recorded a play. I think they did it at Soundstage. I, I I might be wrong, but I know they were recording in there with Ezra last time that they were in town. So, and um, a, a fellow named Vance Powell, who I was relatively unfamiliar with, is was behind the boards. And yeah, there's just a great great textures and and fabric color, like sort of those intangible things in a record, a warmth that I have no doubt will sound amazing on vinyl. Uh, we don't have the luxury of a record player out here on the ranch, pretty uh, rural surrounds and. We're like kind of back to nature, but hopefully we'll get a chance to drop that sucker on, on a needle. Well, I had to ask, man, because you got this relationship with Mike and obviously you're unafraid to publicly opine about the band. Um, have you ever, have you ever had to answer for like, you know, the whole, uh, character zero thing where he's, or the number lined? Uh, I think it's hilarious and I think a, a big part of, of why uh, people really love coming to your, your live stream chats or just hearing your thoughts on the fish is cause you shoot from the hip and you're obviously, there's few bigger fans than you, uh, but you're not afraid to call it like you hear it, but you're also really close to the org, to the band, you know, and, and even some of the band members, as you've said, is there a disconnect there? Do you, have you ever had to answer for some of the commentary? Um, I've just, uh, I, Mike has brought up the, the character zero thing before because his, I think his wife might follow me on Facebook or something. Um, but I basically just told him like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I feel like I see that song every three times I've seen you guys. And I'm like, statistically, that's probably not true. But I'm like, there's just a lot of other songs I'm chasing. And I'm like, it's just kind of a running joke. You know, I've explained it and to anyone listening that doesn't know what we're talking about. Uh, I've sort of created a, a meltdown culture around the song Character Zero, but it actually came from that show at Bill Graham. I don't know if it was 2014 or 2015 where they played Sanity and Iculus and all this great stuff. And they played this amazing fire second set and then came out with a one song Character Zero encore. That's where it all began. But anyway, long, long answer short, I haven't really had to answer for it because I, I don't think I've said anything too vitriolic that they are aware of, but Mike knows that I sort of take an ESPN approach to their set list and not everybody does. I, I wish I could be one of those people that just goes to a show and I'm just so happy and grateful to be there with my friends and to see my favorite four guys on stage, you know, sober and getting along and making good music and selling tickets. That should be enough for me. But, um, you know, when you get a taste of those amazing shows like night three of Alpine in the summer, that's what I'm always chasing. So I tend to get a little bit uh, opinionated about it. I think overall, though, people know half the time I'm really kidding around. I am grateful and I am happy to go to those shows and stuff. It's never really from a bad place. I, when Ari Fink did his ESPN-esque commentary during the Met show this year, everybody wasn't a fan of that. But I was a fan of that because I'm like, this is what I do with my buddies every single time I watch a couch tour stream. Like, I think this is hilarious. I geek out in the statistics of this band and I geek out on the anomalies of songs that are overplayed and underplayed. And the whole thing is just exciting to me beyond the music standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and that drives the engine a lot. If it was all just a bunch of yes, men and women, you know, what's the point? And it drives the band. It drives us. It's why we're, you know, so fanatical. And I got to say, I remember streaming Alpine three with my fiance uh, this past summer and knowing that you and so many of our, uh, dear shared friends got to uh, take that uh, magical night in. And I think that that's, that's, it's those nights that make 
the sort of jaded and sardonic and melt culture that we, you know, have so much fun with, it make, it makes it okay because you know that they're capable of that. And, uh, and if anything, you know, they can't be all Alpine three or there wouldn't be anything special. So that's the sort of give and take of it all. And yeah, you're, you're hosting these sort of things, uh, these, you know, live stream chats, if you will, is a really wonderful way to bring folks together and sort of enjoy the show in a personal way, like as if we'd be hanging out. So thanks for doing that. Um, in light of the current situation, uh, we are getting a really prolific amount of songs from Trey, in addition to obviously them playing the album and kicking down the dinner in a movie live streams, which have been dope. But um, what are you thinking about, like, these songs? Do you see some of these quarantine folk songs from Trey ever uh, manifesting into a song that Fish would play on stage? Is there a, a song or two of this batch that resonated with you? You know, I'm going to be totally honest. I kind of gave all of them a once-over. I was kind of sit, waiting for a time to really sit down and absorb them. But I think, like all things, it kind of goes either – towards Trey's solo direction or will eventually land at least trying something with fish. I don't think, I think anything Trey writes usually at least gets a couple spins in either of the machines. So I wouldn't be surprised to see any of them pop up, especially now that he also has ghost of the force and he isn't afraid to step out and just create a new band to fit, you know, the aesthetic of whatever he's, he's writing at the time, you know? Yeah. He's and, been, and that uh, being said, I think that, that I think some of those ghosts of the forest songs are some of the better, new fish songs too, like about to run. And, um, Oh, there's one other one. I I'm trying the title escapes me at the moment, but I about to run turned out to be one of the greatest summer tour songs this summer. I think. Yeah, it's fantastic tune. And I, I agree. I, I was, uh, moved by the story naturally with ghost of the Fires. How could you not be? You're not a human being. If that doesn't touch you somewhere special, but, uh, the album, when it dropped, I listened to it. It was like, cool, Doug. And lucky for us, uh, the Greek theater out here in Berkeley was the last show of the tour. And by the time they got to the Greek, first Krungbin opened, which was just so awesome. It was on 420. And then, uh, and then just absolutely stunning performance from Ghost of the Forest where the, the, the real meaning and emotions behind the songs were so effectively conveyed and in that, environment was just just ripe for you know the heart of dead country and stuff and it was just really uh i i love those songs because of that experience um i've been asking everyone that comes on the show and uh, we're grateful for each and every person that makes time for the up for life podcast and i again I, I look forward to us doing like a real proper long-form powwow about the long strange trip of chris gelbuta um so for i actually have to ask you two questions first uh I'd catch shit if I didn't ask about King of the Lot. You got to explain the whole myth and legend and song of King of the Lot. Okay, it's really pretty easy. Uh, I was at the second Dick's, must have been, what was that, 2013 maybe? And I was talking to my friend, and I was like looking at these kids selling grilled cheeses. And I said, oh man, when I was young, I used to be able to sell grilled cheeses make enough for a hotel room and a ticket. And then the next day I'd wake up and I'd sell grilled cheeses again. And I, you know, I just 
you know, I just sold my way through fish tours as a kid. My buddy's like, yeah, we all know, Chris, you're the king of the lot. You know, it, it was really came as a, as a dig on me. Like, we all know you think you're the king of the fish lot. Get over yourself. And then uh, my buddy Josh England uh, from my hometown, he's just an amazing parody writer. And so one day we sat down and wrote this song uh, to Roger Miller's King of the Road, which had some funny lyrics like, jumped in through a barbed wire fence and I'm stubbing down friends and grilled cheese and pepper jack and strung out in that hippie crack and all this so i made this recording a few of my friends sent it to the Humphreys and mcgee guys and they were jamming down their butts actually kind of loosely asked me to play it at summer camp before their set or something and i was like i'm not going to be the king of the lot guy i'm sorry i'm not going to do this so i said no but you know then coupled with you know years of fish commentary on facebook people just started stamping this moniker on me and i i don't think it helped when i got the gig playing with phil because you know i was just a kid on fish and deadlocks my whole life and then i was up there playing with phil which was just really like i said mind bending so then it just kind of stuck and now i just live with it but it's not something i call myself it's it's really something people it's just kind of a lark you know well it's incredible and i absolutely love it and uh, do some one of your friends, I'm not sure exactly from where, handed me this sort of like do-it-yourself black and white King of the Lot sticker at the Terrapin Phil shows, and I still have it on my computer, right in the in the in the tent yonder. So I'm still oh, repping the KOTL sticker on my on my travel laptop. But like I was alluding to before, the the last question that I'm asking everyone that's cool and kind enough to come on the show is that. Uh, Music, naturally, is what brings us together. It's it's why I have this podcast. It's how I know you. It's the sort of unified theory that connects us all, uh, if you will, just music. So is there a song or an artist or a show or an album that like you're really leaning on that's getting you through uh, the quarantine and isolation? Um. Yeah, it's Changes by Neil Francis. Uh, right on. Neil Francis is a Chicago-based B3 uh, Wurlitzer player. He used to play in The Herd. Uh, They're a pretty great funk outfit from Chicago. And that band eventually broke up. PJ, the drummer of The Herd, went on to play drums for the Revivalists. And Neil ended up getting sober and kind of turning his life around. and became just this true artist who is obsessed with music and his craft and who he is as a person too. And uh, I think if you listen to his latest record changes, uh, it'll, it'll translate. And uh, he's a, I'm really blessed to actually get to make music with the guy on occasion too. And I've been writing for his next record, but I recently just copped a copy of his, uh, vinyl and I, I can't stop flipping it over. Like, I feel like I've already got my money's worth. I've listened to it probably 20 times. And it's just incredible. I couldn't recommend it enough. Absolutely, man. And and that's just beautiful to hear because uh, my longtime pal, Sergio Rios from Oregon, was involved. I believe he produced that record and played a bunch of guitar on it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's co-sign on the Neil Francis. I look forward to hearing what you put together with him for the next LP. All right, Buddha. Like I said, let this be the first of many. Love to have you on the show. Uh, you're a dear friend and a special soul. So 
on behalf of music fans and fish fans and all our friends, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yes, indeedy. want to say thank you to my man Buddha, Chris Gelbuda. Once again, an interesting and thought-provoking introspective conversation with a bright light in the music community, in multiple music communities, as we learned. So keep your eyes and ears on Chris Gelbuda for all the good stuff he's up to, getting into, and making happen. Now, this has been a long one. We clocked in over two hours for the first time in a minute. So I am not going to keep you much longer. Uh, but just the vibe junkie jam of the week, like we always do about this time. So I, you know, I was inclined to play something in the sort of jam uh, spectrum, if you will. But uh, because the nature of, you know, we had Teddy Kartsman on and Josh Blake and Chris Galbuta, but you know, this podcast is about all the things. And we did talk with Liz Moody a little bit about hip hop, and, and of course, with Josh Blake and GFE and his production work. I know Chris Galbuta is a huge fan of Kendrick Lamar. So we're going to go with this uh, fly as fuck freestyle from a man K. Kung Fu Kenny came through Hot 97 in New York City a few years back and laid one down for Funk Flex. Better yet, it hopped across the pond uh, to London where the one and only J.D. Reed, masterful DJ producer, uh, got his hands on it, laced that K-Dot freestyle with just a motherfucker of a rework of Biggie's timeless war dub who shot you? So, switching gears, Kung Fu Kenny, Kendrick Lamar, freestyle from Hot 97, circa 2016, on the Funk Flex show, diced up, flipped, the script by J.D. Reed. And you're hearing J.D. Reed flip. LL Cool J's doing it well uh, on his own edit, doing it bail. Uh, so check that out. J.D. Reed, just a fucking wizard. I've got another one in the pipeline for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week from that cat that I'm just uh, holding back for the right time. But I felt like I wanted to hit y'all with the K-Dot, you know, to ride out on episode 31 of the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. It's been Isolation Station Volume 3. And next week, we'll see you for a real special occasion. Big up yourself.
heard a conversation with my father talking to his favorite partner at the domino table. Tony had told him that he saw a young nigga hopping out, busting like four charters, popping pills, mix a gallon of Sherman, some holy water. Mix a gallon of Sherman, some holy water, sell it to a priest, and probably can get it off by tomorrow. It's wicked with my favorite uncle, kick it, fiends trying to kick the addiction of sucking glass dicks. Vivid images going gits, any fantasy you can fathom. Phantoms ain't the only thing that's suicidal. Open the doorway to his soul, hit the hallway, then hit the closet. You see a rifle aiming at your arteries, part of me, parts of me a psycho. In retrospect, my respect was a power range, I had no. Tumble it backwards into a karate kick and high note. My innocence will eventually see a hindrance, surrendering. Ninja Turtles, Peach, and Sega Genesis. Go for my bunk bed, ear hustling. Something my papa said that caught my attention. His eyes red, he's smoking no marijuana. Mixing the 211, he said I'm seven, going on 67. The day I turned 17 is the day that a lesson inside my lifetime. Come across a close line, every stick my cosign. Everything in the streets got the power to make me go blind. Even if he sat me down in the sun and gave me those eyes. Comprehended well, and I can smell the soap in this, evaporating by itself. He said, Tony, my biggest fear is to hear Kendrick disappeared in the fire out here, and I didn't help. So if I can get Give them the game, the hydroplanist decisions in life so we can go further than the streets and remain to be on the honor roll. Sacrifice my life even if that shit my mama don't. Till the day he carried by the big six. Domino, come. <laughs> New York City, one take. Rappers learned something today. I'm just telling you what it is. I'm just reciting it as I saw it. Backpack raps with gaps in it. Don't get your cap peeled by the black menace. K. bread. Move like a militant soldier. On point like a pyramid, forced to be reckoned with for the best shit. Like the strongest manure, I'm ready when you are. This is it. I'm in a lab cooking up all day. If I'm up all day, like a nympho, I've been dope since S. Curl Way. Trying to convince hoes I got good hair. Know I'm damn well, it's chemicals there. I'm in the hood with the 17 year olds that's on hood patrol. And they want stripes, so they shoot off bikes, and you know. Any moment you can lose your life, so kiss your kids or hug your wife or whatnot. Yo, I spawned with a dragon. He tried to throw his flame, but I ducked, then I stopped. Them, came out the battle laughing That's a metaphor for any rapper who want it Smack them till they nose is running You know the hose is coming if I'm there And the hose is coming Once we hit that hotel It's no assumption to cool out Before I move out I'm on the 105 and do about 105 before your ass get through out The backseat There's a dead guy on the freeway Oh, that's not Dot Tell the medics it's okay A beast when the beat break You probably think I'm dope Like it's the realest shit I wrote But to me it's a throwaway I stare at them four walls And rap like I'm mad at God Nice enough for your spirit, nah, jab at Jay. Matter of fact, no, I take that back. See, I play with real legends and rap like you do when I'm crucial. Cause real by real scripts and suits, and they shoot. The photography students will be get the bomb. Come on, come on.